Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our weekly uh, ERW Revoir Revelry, ERW Revoir Roundtable, whatever you want to call it. Uh, My name is Rob Orson. I am with uh, ERW. I'm here with... Uh, three, four good friends of mine who uh, know a lot more about this stuff than I do. Um, but I do want to start off by introducing my beverage, which is Glade from Crooked Run Brewery in Sterling. I highly recommend it for those who live in Northern Virginia to try that out. Um, hopefully, if you're watching us, you're having a, a drink as well to wrap up the weekend um, as we go back into our telework week coming up. Uh, introduce our, our historian too, really quick. Uh, we have uh, Blake Griffith. Um, Licensed Battlefield Guide at Gettysburg, um, author of a book about Lake George um, and a book coming out pretty soon on the Battle of Monmouth. Hopefully this summer you all will see that coming out. We also have Mark Malloy um, from Alexandria, Virginia, and author of a book about Trenton and Princeton, and currently working on a book, hopefully, here's the shameless promotion, there it is, hopefully working on a book by, uh, about Charleston, right, Mark? Oh, yeah. We're here. All right. That's right. <laughs> and then we have Phil Greenwald back from Florida. Uh, no palm trees this week because of weather, but uh, Phil is the author. There's one palm tree. Phil's the author of a couple Civil War books and a great book about Lexington and Concord, a single blow that he and I wrote together. And his Valley Forge book should be out pretty soon. Um, and finally, we have Eric Sterner, who um, writes for ERW and Journal of American Revolution. Um, Eric, for some reason, has agreed to join this group of vagabonds, and hopefully, your reputation, Eric, will not be hurt by a drink. So, being on here tonight, um, and uh, Eric is authoring a book about William Crawford's 1782 campaign, um, and uh, against the Native American Indians in the Northwest Ohio Territory, and that should be out hopefully this fall. Of course, a lot of our print schedules are a little bit off because of the pandemic, but hopefully these books will be out this fall and summer and um, you guys have the ability to get those. So our topic tonight is over or underlooked battles in the American Revolution and overlooked battles, however you want to say it. Um, a friend of mine said that any battle of the American Revolution has probably been overlooked, but uh, if you're watching us, you definitely are in a Rev War buff. So we have selected a few battles that each of us believe was important in the outcome of the American Revolution, but doesn't really get a lot of attention. Uh, most people know about Yorktown, they know about Bunker Hill, they know about sometimes Saratoga, but there's a lot of fighting along the East Coast here um, and out West um, during the Revolutionary War that doesn't really get the proper um, scholarship. So Mark has already asked to go first, so I will let Mark take it away and Again, guys, this is going to be free-flowing. If you all have questions as you watch, please just post questions on the chat box there and on the Facebook chat, and we will send them to you and get your response. Go, Mark. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, when we were first talking about uh, overlooked battles, uh, and like Rob said, I mean, uh, to much of the American public, I feel like a lot, 
the whole war, you know, a lot of the battles are overlooked. A lot of people don't know ones that are, are big name battles that happened. And probably one of the largest battles of the entire uh, war uh, was the battle for New York uh, in the summer and fall of 1776. Uh, you know, Washington's commanding the largest army he ever commanded, almost, you know, 24,000 men. British come in with 32,000 men. It's, uh, it's just a massive um, uh, campaign uh, that goes all across uh, what is now, you know, the five boroughs. They're going through Brooklyn, Manhattan, um, you know, all, all the way up to Fort Washington, Fort Lee. And these are all like major, major battles. And they do get a lot of play, I guess, in the academic sense. A lot of uh, Revolutionary War historians know about these battles. But it's amazing when you're talking to people, they don't realize, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, Kipps Bay is an area today right in downtown Manhattan uh, was scene of major fighting. Uh, and of course, at that time, none of it was built up the way it is today. Uh, so I always wonder how many New Yorkers are walking through the, the streets of New York with these modern buildings, don't realize that underneath their feet, uh, you know, were battlefields where thousands of men uh, fought and, and thousands died. Uh, so it's such a, such a major area that, you know, to the average American, I don't think they realize that that was a, that all of New York, New York City was a battlefield during the revolution. And some people will notice markers here and there if they're walking through the city. Uh, I saw Rob, you posted the other day about uh, Francis's Tavern, which is right downtown Manhattan. People kind of know some of these small sites, but they don't realize that this was all part of uh, part of the Revolutionary War. And uh, another really you know overlooked thing that people don't realize is a lot of people that weren't killed in the battles, those that are captured, they're thrown onto uh, prison ships. They're right there in New York Harbor. Um, and thousands of men died out in these prison ships. And actually in the 19th century, some of the bones of the people, the bodies they had thrown overboard were still washing up. And some of the uh, people uh, in Brooklyn gathered up these bones and they buried them under this huge monument that there's today, the prison uh, ship martyrs monument. So uh, there, are, there are reminders throughout New York City, but overall, I think, I think all the battles around New York, people don't realize that's, a, that's one giant battlefield for the revolution. So, so, Mark, for people that go to New York to see these things or plaques, I know you've been up there a few times, obviously, and done some touring around, seen some pictures you posted. What's your favorite spot to go, let's say, in Manhattan that's Rev War focused that you think most people don't know? Francis Tavern people know, I think, for the most part. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, people know about, like I said, some of these sites. I would say one of the cool sites, um, and just because it, it comes into my mind right, right away, was during this initial fighting uh, in Brooklyn. Um, if you go up to Brooklyn, you go to Greenwood Cemetery. Uh, there's a place called Battle Hill uh, up there. It's, it's really cool because you go up there and it, it, you can still see because of the cemetery, you can still see some of the how the land, you know, uh, actually was at that time. And it was a hill there and uh, the Americans uh, defended it during the battle. Um, but today there's a, uh, a monument of, uh, uh, it's called the Altar of Liberty in Minerva. There's a statue of Minerva there and she's saluting. And uh, if you look all the way across, uh, uh, she's saluting the Statue of Liberty out in New York Harbor, uh, which I think is really kind of cool. So I'd say that's one cool thing. And another one that, again, people walk over every day. Everybody walks down the Brooklyn Bridge. And I always tell people, you know, that was right where Washington had to evacuate his whole army on the night of August 27th, 1776. You know, he was pinned up against uh, the, the East River there and he, he could have him and his whole 9000 men could have been destroyed. But thankfully, because uh, of divine providence and because of uh, John Glover's Marbleheaders, they were able to ferry those guys across right where the Brooklyn Bridge sits today. And a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Marbleheaders are, are well known for Trenton, obviously crossing Delaware there. But, um, you know, they're doing it there at the East River before they get to, to the Delaware. Few yeah. months later so and, uh, and the new york campaign will play a huge role too because after new york was captured that became headquarters for the british army for the rest of the war uh so you're gonna see them going all around but the entire time they're still there in new york city billy what do you think uh yeah i definitely agree with mark that that battle in new york is definitely overlooked but i wanted to talk about another battle that takes place uh, near upstate New York, more specifically on Lake Champlain. Uh, for anybody who's been to the Museum of American History, they've personally seen something related to this battle. 
but they probably don't know too much about it. And that is the gondola Philadelphia, which was found at the bottom of Lake Champlain in 1935, raised and then given to the museum in 1961. And that small boat belonged to a makeshift Navy that was put together by Brigadier General Benedict Arnold in 1776. This is, of course, when he is still fighting for the uh, America. And this small Navy is put together in response to the British at the northern end of the lake in Canada, who were then building a Navy prepared to invade New York and capture uh, two American strongholds at Crown Point, and then 10 miles south of that at Fort Ticonderoga to potentially push down the Hudson River towards Albany and maybe even sever New England off from the colonies or link up with William Howe's army in New York City. So that could have been a devastating blow for the American cause if this British army under the command of the Royal Governor of Canada, Guy Carleton, was able to achieve this. But he's not able to because Benedict Arnold's small navy is going to situate itself about 50 miles north of Fort Ticonderoga in between what is known as Valcour Island and the western shore of the lake. They're going to form a defensive line and run into about 50 boats of this British navy. About half of them are actually uh, battle ready. The other ones are just carrying supplies, but there's still larger ships that the British have built uh, compared to about the 15 smaller vessels that Arnold was commanding. But on October 11, 1776, Arnold is going to fight through this thick smoke uh, at about 300 yards away from this British uh, ship line. And the fighting is going to essentially end in stalemate as darkness sets around 530. About an hour after that, that's when the Philadelphia, which has been pummeled by that point, will sink to the bottom of the lake. And actually that evening, he's going, Arnold is going to bring together his officers and come up with a plan to slip past this British uh, line of ships. And they're going to succeed that under the cover of a fog and darkness, sneak past the British on the western end of the lake and make their way towards Fort Ticonderoga and Crown Point. And for the next two days, the British are going to pursue them. There will be a little action on the 13th, but Arnold will uh, disembark his men along the shore and escape about 200 of the 870 or so that were with him. Uh, Carlton is going to continue towards Fort Ticonderoga, but he's not going to want to press his luck anymore. It's already growing deep into the season. There's going to be heavy snow there in October, November. So his uh, invasion of New York is essentially going to be delayed by that defeat uh, that Arnold will be in command of. However, it is a strategic victory for the Americans and the first major naval action for uh, America in our history. That's a good candidate. And you also tie in Benedict Arnold, which, you know, we all we all know what happens to him. And the more popular notion of Arnold is the, the traitor. But as we all know, Arnold's very effective at the beginning of the war and one yeah. of the best American field uh, field generals that the Continental Army has. Or um, In my opinion, I was going to say no other man besides Washington did more for the American cause than Benedict Arnold. And it's unfortunate. I think that's definitely one of the biggest tragedies in American history is his fall. Uh, towards treason. But it's probably also why victories like or strategic victories like Valcour Island are overlooked because it is associated with Benedict Arnold. We really don't want to give him any praise uh, as Americans because of what he ends up doing. All right. Hey, Mark, real quick before we move on, we have a question for you, Mr. Malloy. Yeah. Um, what are some good resources you recommend about the prison ships that are in New York City during the war? Oh, geez. <clears throat> I don't know. I, I haven't uh, uh, read many full book length volumes on the, the prison ships. Uh, you know, I did some research because they weren't just in New York City. They're in other harbors. And, you know, I lived down in Charleston, South Carolina for a while, and they did have them down there. And uh, Carl Boric uh, wrote a book uh, about the prison uh, ships and prisoners in general of occupied Charleston. Um, but for New York, yeah, I'm not, I'm not positive. Uh, I can check about that and I can get back to them. I'll jump in uh, with, uh, there's one, I think it's called the Ghost Ship. Uh, is it New Jersey? Wasn't New Jersey a famous? Yeah, New Jersey was the, was the big one, yeah. So yeah, there's a Ghost Ship uh, book that came out two, three years ago uh, on it. Um, did a lot of the, uh, the research and the guys actually, I think, try to find where the ship may have been, like strategic or so forth about uh, in the river there. So that's the one that comes right to my mind. Um, the only reason I know that is I think I did a review for it for Emerging Red War. So if you uh, go to our blog, it, uh, the search, ghost ship, it should take you to it. Um, 
if my memory serves me correct, but that's recent history. So usually I only deal with past history. All right. Eric, you want to jump in here and um, share your wisdom, sir? Uh, <laughs> <this>, right? <laughs> no, I got, I got a, a, an interesting battle. I don't know how dis important it was in the big scheme of things, but uh, I'm going to throw out there uh, the Battle of Sandusky. Okay. Nobody's ever heard of it, even including people who live in Sandusky which is what killed, killed me when I found out about it. I didn't know anything about it, and I grew up in Ohio. So uh, you're talking about 1782, uh, May and June. Um, start with March 1782. A bunch of guys get together in the southwest corner of Pennsylvania. They go out to the Muskingum River, the Tuscarawas today in Ohio, and they massacre 96 um, peaceful Indians. That's what the book I'm writing have coming out this fall about the massacre at Ned and Hutton. Follow up to that, all these guys got together and said, hey, that was a great success. And they go back to see General Irvine, who's commanded Fort Pitt, and said, we need to follow up on this brilliant success. And Irvine and a lot of the other senior leaders in the area are shocked and, and horrified about what went on. Uh, but these, these, these guys from the counties had this idea, we're going to go attack the Indians in northwest Pennsylvania, or northwest Ohio which is where a lot of the raiders moving into Kentucky and southwestern Pennsylvania had come from, the Wyandotte, uh, Huron, and, and some of the other tribes out there. So Irvine can't really send anything with them. He doesn't have any resources, and Washington's pretty much shut down offensive operations in the West. He says, okay, you can go, and he gives them a bunch of rules, uh, one of which is bring honor to the United States. Do this on your own nickel. Um, do this fast, because Irvine's been thinking about how to attack Detroit for a while. Um, and, you know, be good. Don't go off and kill people uh, for no good reason. So they all get together around the end of May at a place called Mingle Bottom, which is right on the Ohio River. They march across the state and they arrive just outside uh, an abandoned Wyandotte village on the Sandusky River, like around July 4th, 1782. Um, at this point, they're running low on provisions. Things haven't gone as well as they've had hoped. They're being tracked all the way from the Ohio River. It turns out that the British and the Indians knew they were coming as far back as April before they'd even mustered because, you know, Americans can't keep their mouths shut. So they've been tracked since they crossed the river and the Indians know they're coming. And one of the great ironies of this whole campaign is um, the British mobilized their resources around Detroit in Northwestern Ohio before the Americans did for an American offensive. So a bunch of guys, the Butler's Rangers, uh, had sort of come down from Detroit already. And uh, Crawford stops around July 4th, mid-morning, says, okay, I don't know what's in front of me. The village I wanted to hit is empty. My guys are hungry, has a council of officers. They all say, oh, press on, press on, press on. Let's keep going. So he pulls a guy, his uh, sort of an aide, guy named Major John Rose aside and says, why don't you take 40 men, go reconnoiter on up ahead. Now, the, the territory out there is kind of a rolling plain. It's, it's, it's really open and empty, a lot of high grass, but not a lot of trees. Uh, it's where it starts to turn into the Great Plains that you start to see in Indiana and, of course, further west. So Rose is moving forward towards the next Wyandotte village. And as he gets there, a bunch of Indians spring up out of the grass, full in the face, they surprise him. He can see him moving off to his right and off to his left. So he starts a, a running battle moving back. And he gets word back to Crawford and Crawford starts rushing forward. And um, Rose and Crawford's main body, about 465 men, they all get together at this little copse of trees on a hill, which became known as Battle Island. It's not an island, but in this sea of grass, it's a bunch of trees on an elevated plain, so it looks like an island. And they battle the Indians there for three days. Uh, there's about 50 Brits. Lord knows how many Indians, because they never got a good head count. There's about 465, 435. Um, not quite militia, because they weren't mustered in formally, but most of the people in the Southwest had, Pennsylvania had served in the militia. Uh, the guy in command is William Crawford, not acting as a militia officer. His second is a guy named David Williamson, who is a militia officer. Um, 
but is kind of got elected on the spot. You know, the militia in Pennsylvania, you generally were nominated and elected and approved by the state before you went on a campaign. So they battled back and forth three days, kind of light skirmishing. Um, Crawford's left is protected by a marsh. His right's got some woods. There's a lot of maneuvering back and forth in the woods because the Indians are trying to get around him and behind him. He can't let that happen. He's got to secure his line of his line of retreat. So this goes on for a little while. And finally, on the night of the 5th, another officer's council, what are we going to do about this? This isn't going well while we're running low on ammunition now for two days. The Indians are getting stronger. They've got more tribes coming in. Shawnee are coming up from the south. Uh, they say, let's bug out. So they get to the middle of the night, says we're going to do this, you know, Washington style. We're going to sneak out, campfires burning and so on. But being a bunch of undisciplined quasi-militia type folks, word gets out. The Indians know they're leaving. And this retreat breaks down almost automatically into a pell-mell race for the East. And these guys have a running fight pretty much all the way back to the Ohio. Now, Butler, or not Butler, a guy named Lieutenant Turney, who is running the company for uh, Butler's Rangers at this point, because his boss got shot, um, breaks off at a second big skirmish on the Olentangy River, which is just, sat, just east of the, of the Sandusky. Um, so he breaks off, says, okay, we've had enough. George Riders, Clark may be coming up from the Ohio. So I've had enough, but groups of Indians continue to harass um, Crawford's force all the way back to the Ohio. Now, where this gets interesting is Crawford is separated from his main, his main body in the middle of the night during his chaotic retreat. He gets captured. Uh, he's captured along with uh, a doctor, the surgeon for the force, who also works for Irvine. And uh, they torture him to death. Uh, and this is retaliation for the Naden Hutton massacre. Crawford had nothing to do with the Naden Hutton massacre and was essentially in command to try and prevent a repeat. But Knight witnesses the whole thing and he writes it up. He gets rushed into, pr into print, sort of as an oral history. Someone writes it down, it gets rushed into print, circulated up and down the East Coast. And it just stokes this, this, this uh, racial hatred and animosity that's been going on for the most of the war, but really takes it up a notch. Um, and that's kind of a crappy note to end on, but that's where that war gets left in 1782 when it comes to Southwest Pennsylvania and Ohio. So I thought that was a really interesting battle because nobody's heard of it. <laughs> right. Uh, they're still not sure where the battlefield is. There's a great local historian there, a guy named Tom Hill, who has done amazing research to figure out where this is. And he's, I had the pleasure of meeting him and getting a tour with him a couple of years ago. And uh, he's got it. I think he's probably right. He's got it nailed down with the marsh on the left, woods on the right, and the hill in the middle. Uh, the trees, of course, have all moved. Farmers have plowed up the grass. So it's hard to recognize the land. But he's, he's come about as close as anybody ever is likely to, barring some archaeological research. Great guy. Good. So what drew you? What drew you to that story? Like what? I'll, what piqued <laughs> your, your interest? Because I mean, you know, a, a lot. A lot is no. I'm gonna say a lot. A little bit is known about how, you know, the British and the Americans are all still fighting out west with Native American tribes and stuff. But what about this particular story interested you so much? It was really weird. I I started collecting material for George Rogers Clark looking at some research on him. I came across Knight's account, which was printed contemporaneously um, with uh, the battle, or just shortly after the battle when he finally made it way, his way back east. And the description of the horrendous torture they put Crawford through before he died, just, you know, you look at it and you're, you're, you're like, wow, the stories are true, assuming you can believe Knight, and you really can, uh, it's pretty accurate. And I went, well, what, why did this guy deserve this? That led me to look at Naden Hutton because it was clear Naden Hutton was at least the source of part of the animosity that was directed at the Americans. Yeah, um, I, I've read that. I think I read that account of his mm -hmm. uh, torch because studying the, because he was a Virginian, right? Uh, I believe. He, he went back and forth. Whoever was in charge. <laughs> I think he yeah, was Pennsylvanian. Yeah. Yesterday I was a Virginian. At some point he was in command, I believe, of a Virginia regiment. But he, uh, uh, studying the Virginia line officers, I know I came to read about his demise. Yeah. And it was, it's pretty brutal what they like, 
tied him to a post on coals and he had to walk around that and and then like cut off different parts of his body i mean it was yeah it was brutal and it went on for hours and it wasn't uncommon uh for the survivors of this particular battle who were taken prisoner um so that that's what got me is reading knight's account that got me into reading the account i wrote for the blog a couple years ago did a five-parter on the campaign and that's what got me back to Nat and Hutton. Um, why did this all happen? You got to come back to Nat and Hutton. And, and I think that's something that's overlooked overall in the war is the brutality of it. Uh, you know, I think I think people usually hear Revolutionary War, they just think, you know, powdered wig guys, you know, let me fire first. You know, they don't think like this was like extremely brutal and bloody. And yeah, a lot of people don't realize that how much uh, conflict there was with the Native Americans on the frontier too. Look, What's really creepy about it, I was a poli-sci guy and it reminded me of Yugoslavia. These guys know each other, all right? The, the, the Indian leaders who were essentially torturing him to death know him personally and have known him for 20 years because he's been a feature out there. He was one of the uh, sort of semi-legal land surveyors for Washington when Washington was trying to buy up uh, land along the Ohio River and the Kanawha. Um, he didn't actually have training as a surveyor. He sort of learned it by hook and crook, and then they had to go scam a license for him. But <laughs> so he goes, he and Washington went back a while, um, but he knew the people who were doing this to him and the people who were doing it to him, you know, obviously they knew him. It's like, wow, I've, I've, you know, I've had dinner with him or lunch with him or supped with him on the banks of the Ohio river as friends and fellow, fellow traders, you know, we were exchanging goods. Um, so this, this, the brutality of this, this war out in the West, just horrible, just horrible. And, and it even continues going on. Cause I know, uh, you know, a, another overlooked battle around that area too, I guess it's further out. Um, but, uh, St. Clair's defeat in 1791 or mm-hmm. uh, once they go out there, that's like one of the biggest U S military defeats to native Americans that, you know, a lot of people don't even know, I've never even heard of. Yeah, if you go to Fallen Timbers, it's just, it's a metro park southwest of Toledo. It's closed. <laughs> you got to get special permission from Toledo Metro Parks to go in and see it. Oh, really? Uh, I, I don't know if there's anything interpretive there. I couldn't get the permission in the time I had. <laughs> and this is before COVID or? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I was, on a, I was on a rush. I was in a hurry. I was mainly looking at Crawford's campaign. Well, well, Eric, you'll be happy to know that at least four people watching knew part of that story. Awesome. There you go. I mean, the, I obviously, the Crawford story is pretty well known. Um, you know, I think people have heard of it, whether they know all the circumstances behind it. But I think, you know, as Mar- even Mark knew that story. And Mark doesn't know anything but George Washington. So, I mean. Well, it's the Washington connection. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty amazing, Mark. Congrats. <laughs> Bill. Are you going to bring us down south, or are you going to keep us up north? Uh, let's do Eric, Eric, Eric did move us to the west, which is good. Uh, wearing a Maryland shirt here, I'll keep us north and south. That way I play both sides evenly. <laughs> he brought it up. <laughs> is that because we are 31 minutes into this, and last week we were 31 minutes before Mark brought up a good war topic. So I'm just keeping <laughs> I mean, uh... Kind of one of the bigger overlooked battles um, that uh, finally is getting it. Um, it's been part of some general history. Thomas McGuire has uh, put it in, uh, has written a few, but finally Michael Harris is coming out with a book on Germantown, uh, October of 1777, um, which really plays uh, big in the French foreign uh, ministry because it shows Washington's army after losing the capital, after losing Brandywine, can still rebound and maybe with a little better weather in the morning would have, uh, or not an infatuation with uh, the mansion there, Tyvon would have maybe uh, defeated part of Powell's army. Uh, another quick one, since I uh, uh, researched the Valley Forge, is actually the small little engagement at Barron Hill under the Marquis de Lafayette. Um, although they uh, are um, forced to retreat, the United States Army retreats in a um, in a uh, manner that shows the training that Steuben did during the winter um, actually took effect. So the army was able to deploy. They had actually skirmishers out in front. There's actually some Native American uh, 
scouts working with a good Virginian, uh, Daniel Morgan's rifleman, uh, scouting it out, and they were able to actually look like an army. So it was one of the victor uh, victory and defeats uh, that categorized, especially Washington's Revolutionary War uh, acumen. But one um, that also has large ramifications is actually uh, we'll call it, uh, the Siege of Pensacola in 1781. Uh, Bernardo de Galvez, uh, who is the Spanish governor of uh, Louisiana, uh, actually um, also helped with a guy named uh, Oliver Pollock, who funds some of George Rogers Clark's, bankrolls some of George Rogers Clark's um, expeditions in the West. Pollock is called the uh, Robert Morris, the great financier of the, the West and the Revolution. But Galvez uh, actually funneled some ammunition. He actually traded with uh, the Hanover Congress. Patrick Henry actually wrote him uh, letters. Uh, Washington actually um, said that he helped, uh, especially uh, change the affair in the Western uh, or in the Southern colonies. Um, although Galvez didn't do it because of like Lafayette or Cusco, one of those ones that had great uh, revolutionary tendencies. Uh, his siege to obviously tied up British soldiers in Florida. His siege, um, also um, kept uh, freed the French fleet because now the British are disgraded uh, uh, from Florida. The French can now send their fleet to Yorktown. Um, and so it frees up French naval might that actually leads to one of the biggest uh, victories and one of the most known battles or campaigns of the war, the Yorktown siege. But lastly, to show the importance is that uh, Galvez is actually one of only eight nationals along with Winston Churchill and the Marquis de Lafayette to actually be given honorary U.S. citizenship for his contributions to the war effort. So he is one of the most overlooked, if we do an overlooked leaders thing, and we had someone comment, Kate uh, Bightly say overlooked leaders. He is one because he does not fight in the 13 colonies that are uh, fighting for independence, but his victory in Pensacola sets the stage uh, for larger implications and also shows how the war kind of comes for the British, evolves into a world war, having to fight the French, the Spanish, and so forth, um, so on. Uh, I am uh, drinking out of a Sam Adams class, so I just want to throw that out there. A good Florida beer, uh, but it is a Belgian brew, so being multicultural here, um, which is the American Revolution itself, because Mr. Adams uh, spent a lot of time uh, in the uh, Dutch or in the Low Countries trying to get money for this, so. Oh, there we go. I try to throw Spanish, French, Polish. Good. Um, All right, wait a minute. Hey, Mark, 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 hold on, hold on. We have a very important comment here. People are worried that you're out of beer. Yeah, no, I saw the comment. I, <laughs> I, I, I got another okay. one. Okay, so all right. We're, <laughs> disaster has been converted. So. <laughs> and speak, all right, so you're, the beer I'm drinking is a nice Hofbrauhaus Hefeweizen, so... Uh, which uh, leads me to what I think uh, this next battle, which had a lot to do with Germans, uh, I think is the real uh, most, uh, uh, the most overlooked uh, and probably the most crucial uh, battle of the revolution. And that's the Battle of Assenpink Creek, uh, also known as the Second Battle of Trenton. Uh, a lot of people have not heard of this. A lot of people haven't heard about the Battle of Trenton. Most people know Trenton, uh, the Battle of Trenton, because of a painting about the crossing of the Delaware River. Um, crossing of the Delaware River is probably the most famous event, and that was just the, uh, the conveyance to the actual battle that happened afterwards. Um, of course, Washington, uh, after those disastrous defeats in New York in 1776, the armies pushed back against the, uh, uh, over the Delaware River in Pennsylvania on Christmas. He's going to, in a snowstorm, cross the Delaware River. Uh, and attack a, a, a brigade of Hessians in the town of Trenton and wins a great victory uh, that saved the American Revolution. Most people have heard that story. Most people know that, and uh, that's important. But what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, right after this major victory, the British were furious. And so they gathered, you know, General Charles Cornwallis gathered all the redcoats he could find in New York and a force of about 8,000 come marching down the road down to crush Washington and uh, right this uh, errant wrong that had happened at Trenton on the day after Christmas. And uh, what Washington does is uh, he's kind of in an odd situation. He doesn't know what, what to do. You know, he wants to exploit his victory and make it look like it wasn't just a fluke. Um, and yet he also has this army that's now, you know, he's in Trenton um, and he's trying to make a determination of what to do while this massive British force is coming down on him. 
Um, so basically what he decides to do is he, uh, there's a little Creek that runs uh, through the, through the city of Trenton called Assenpink Creek. Um, and there's some high ground there and he, 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 has, he puts his whole army behind this, this Creek. Um, and what he does is he sends out some of his soldiers on the road from Trenton up to Princeton, uh, which is where the British were. And they started heading down towards Trenton on January 2nd, 1777. Um, and as the British are coming down, uh, the Americans are basically every little creek and uh, place they can stop. Uh, the Americans are hiding behind trees and they're firing into the British and the British have to stop. They have to deploy into battle line. They have to fight the Americans and they have to get back in the column and keep going down the road. Um, and basically uh, this slows down the British advance all day on the day of January 2nd, 1777. Um, finally, as the sun is setting and it starts getting dark, uh, the British finally make it into the town of Trenton. Um, and they run into the town of Trenton. Um, there's some fighting and uh, all the Americans are trying to get over the bridge on the Aston Creek. Um, once the Americans get, get all their guys over there, Cornwallis, they're gonna launch three half-hearted assaults over the bridge. And every time they're gonna be met with disastrous volleys of musketry and cannon from the uh from the continentals on the, the south side of the creek um and uh cornwallis is going to stop at you know as it got too dark so cornwallis just sort of has a meeting with his officers and he says you know we'll bag the old fox in the morning um and uh he decides he'll assault the american position on the next day january 3rd 1777 Washington is now in this like probably one of the worst positions he's been in the entire war. He has the Delaware River to his back, one of the best, you know, British army sitting right at his front. Um, and what does he do now? He could retreat uh, down towards Philadelphia, but then again, it'd be a morale loss that he just had this big morale win from Trenton uh, probably would have wiped that whole victory out. Uh, he could stand and fight. Uh, but if they got, if the British overran them, which, likely could have happened uh you know he had the Delaware his back him and his men would have been captured or killed uh and then uh he makes the decision to do something very audacious uh he tells his men to basically build up all their campfires he leaves a few guys there and make a lot of noise and then he takes his whole army and he marches around the british flank down this road that they didn't have guarded uh goes all the way around throughout the night of january 2nd and into the third and early next morning, on around right at sunrise, January 3rd, 1777, he's going to meet a British rear guard at Princeton that he's going to win a great victory at. He wins the battle at Princeton, uh, and then he goes on uh, to, to house his army up in Morristown. But in, you know, that saved the American Revolution, and you know, Cornwallis was forced to go back because next morning they went into the American earthworks at Aston Pink Creek, and they found they were empty. Uh, but had the Americans, and among those people, there's a uh, Colonel Edward Hand who is commanding the uh, the retreat uh, as the uh, the British advance. Had the Americans not fought all day on January second, seventeen seventy-seven, had they not repulsed the British assaults that evening, uh, you know, Washington wouldn't have been able to have the Battle of Princeton, and the Revolution could have been lost. So mm -hmm. it's like a really, really important battle. Uh, it's just amazing that so few people a have ever heard of it. Um, and yeah, if you go up to the, the sites today, there are some markers up there, but you know, it's not well, you know, it's not well interpreted as far as this was a major battle to help save the whole revolution. That's good. And it's another George Washington battle, Mark, I'm not surprised. So, um, <laughs> and Mark, where can people read more about this battle? So there was a book, uh, <laughs> there was a book, uh, of course you have mine, self-promotion. You can, which also has directions to the sites. Uh, there was also another book that was recently published uh, uh, entitled The Road to Aston Paint Creek uh, by David Price. He's actually an interpreter up there. It's a really good book uh, and actually, uh, you know, focuses, you know, because most of these books about the 10 crucial days, Trenton and Princeton, you know, focus on Trenton and Princeton. And this kind of gets lost in the middle. Uh, this book kind of changes it. So the real focus is on that second battle uh, out of the three. Um, but all three of those battles were crucial. Uh, it's just a shame that that second one kind of gets forgotten. You want, you want to play six degrees of separation between that battle and William Crawford? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So Edward Hand, 
goes off and becomes commander at Fort Pitt. All right. I think 1777. He launches something called the Squaw Campaign, which is the lamest excuse you've ever heard for a campaign. He's going to march up the Beaver River and then he thinks he's going to get, you know, attack a supply depot on the Cuyahoga, which is where Cleveland is on the Cuyahoga, right? So it's a total disaster. His guys are screwed up. What he does is he basically uh, raids a little tiny fishing and salt camp that's mostly women and children and a couple Indians. Does that twice. One of the guys killed is, is uh, oh, I forgot his name, but his, his brother is, is a Delaware Indian named Hopacan. Hopacan goes by Captain Pipe, right? Okay, so Captain Pipe has his brother killed during the squaw campaign of General Edward Hand. Captain Pipe is also the guy who basically orders that Crawford be tortured to death because he was leading the Delaware forces who moved out to the Sandusky by 1782. Oh. So there's six degrees of separation from <laughs> George Washington oh. to the torturing to death of William Crawford. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that, that's a good point, too, because uh, so when Washington had his war council on the night of January 2nd, people wonder, like, who was the guy, you know, was it Washington? Cause it's interesting how Washington did his, uh, made his military decisions. It was all by, like, consensus. So you'd have all his officers gather around. And uh, they believe it was Arthur St. Clair uh, who, who suggested that he take this uh, road around uh, around the British and go up to uh, Princeton. And St. Clair, of course, is going to lead the detachment in 1791 that gets uh, wiped out. Uh, so it's just interesting that, yeah, a lot of these guys that are fighting, yeah, in in the East or whatever, eventually are fighting out in the West. So it wasn't as far for them. So One of the things I'll throw in real quick is uh, several of us were in uh, Camden, South Carolina last year, actually maybe two years ago now. And we got a great tour by David Ruhr, who's a local historian in Camden, of Hopkirk's Hill, which is a great battle. Uh, Nathaniel Green's um, fight there in uh, April of, eight, of 1781, uh, overshadowed by the first battle of Camden, um, which is actually fought farther away from Camden than Hopkirk's Hill's fought. But it's one of Green's actions after Guilford Courthouse when um, Cornwallis goes to Wilmington, Green follows him a little bit and decides to go to South Carolina and empty out some of the British outposts in the backcountry and positions himself just north of Camden, a place called Hopkirk Till. If you go there today, it's all developed. There's a great interpretive trail system with markers in the neighborhood to give you a good description of the battle. And we got a great tour there last year. Um, Green loses the battle as Green loses all of his battles. Um, the Marylanders there, Phil, fight really well. Maryland's Maryland's best years are 1776 to 1781. Uh, <laughs> sorry, but um, it's a it's a, it's a great battle in the sense that it's it's overlooked by the first Camden, obviously, but it is one of Green's smaller actions that he he's going to lose the battle. But a couple of days later, the British and Camden are going to leave the outposts there and and start heading eastward, which is going to start clearing the backcountry. Um, also of note, and and some of you all know this, but a future president was nearby during that fight in jail. We got to see the location of that jail. Andrew Jackson was actually in jail there in Camden um, during that fight. Um, so it's another neat, neat little side story there um, about how all American history is, is so connected. But yeah. I, want, I wanted to bring it south a little well, bit. Thank you. Oh, and I, I like your hat you got on there. Um, right. That. I think we picked that up while we were down there in South That's Carolina. Right. Uh, yeah, as a former resident of the Palmetto State, I think overall the Revolutionary War history in the state is, uh, you know, underappreciated. Uh, it, it played such a huge role. I think there are two major battles uh, that I've always tried to interpret that, you know, a lot of people don't realize are really important. And those are the two battles that happened in Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston is so famous for being the site of the first shots of the American Civil War. But uh, in 1776, you know, a detachment of the British Navy came down with Sir Henry Clinton to try and capture uh, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And they were repulsed at Fort Moultrie. Uh, it was then Fort Sullivan on Sullivan's Island right outside of Charleston. It's now a National Park Service site. Um, but uh, it was at, uh, uh, during that battle, the fort was made of palmetto tree. And the British cannibals actually either, you know, lodged it, you know, it were absorbed, the uh, palmetto, the soft, spongy palmetto tree absorbed the shock of the cannonballs, 
And uh, so it was because of that battle that the palmetto tree became the state tree of South Carolina. That's why it's on the uh, uh, state flag. And if you look at Rob's hat there, uh, that crescent uh, you'll see on the flag as well. Um, that was a uh, moon uh, that was meant to, to recognize the second sons. Uh, so it was like a heraldry symbol. So all the firstborn sons in England pretty much got everything. Uh, they didn't have to leave. And a lot of secondborn sons ended up coming to America. And uh, so they flew that uh, symbol on their flags during the Revolutionary War. And so the state flag today has that plus the, the, the uh, palmetto tree to represent that battle. And in 1780, there is the biggest siege of the revolution with the biggest American loss of light or the biggest loss for the American army was at Charleston in 1780, which is also overlooked. Uh, but overall, yeah, the South was hugely important to the revolution. And it's so let's, throw, let's throw in another connection if we're going to Andrew Jackson, South Carolina prison ships. Didn't Andrew Jackson's mother uh, serve as a nurse on a few of the prison ships in Charleston Harbor? Of the connection uh, once again. So, I mean, yeah, died. Let's, let's uh, tell us, I mean, we can just loop it up. Maybe uh, forgotten battles, forgotten uh, militia battles. I mean, South Carolina is right with the militia going after each other, being as bloodthirsty as anything else. So um, I think, I mean, it, it, there, you can just mold them into one. The, there's militia battles. Because uh, we're getting blown up on Facebook right now by Vanessa Smiley talking about. South Carolina has many more. <laughs> um, if she really likes South Carolina so much, why does she move closer to Maryland and not stay in South Carolina? So, um, otherwise, we would have had her on here talking about those forgotten battles. There you go, Vanessa. Oh, gosh. Billy, save us. Yeah. All right. Uh, back to the capture of Charleston. Who commanded the Americans there? It's Benjamin Lincoln, right? Yep. Benjamin Lincoln then surrenders, and who is he exchanged for later on? It's Major General William Phillips, right? Pretty right. sure. Who was Burgoyne's second in command during the Saratoga campaign, part of the Convention Army surrender. So now we're going to bring it back north into New York. Uh, regarding that same 1770 campaign, uh, as Burgoyne is moving south towards Albany, I'm going to talk about Fort Stanwix. Okay, a siege that lasted for over two weeks. Not really a siege. Uh, if you think about it, because there wasn't any artillery involved, but nonetheless, this is a very important battle during that year of campaigns because the British Army moving from Lake uh, Ontario uh, through the Mohawk Valley was supposed to link up with John Burgoyne's army. However, they are stopped at Fort Stanwix, which is in present day Rome, New York. Uh, and because of that, that's a huge blow to Burgoyne because now he's not getting help from this army commanded by a Lieutenant Curry, uh, Colonel Barry St. Ledger, uh, as well as he's not getting army from, or help from New York City as well, with Henry Clinton there moving up the Hudson Highlands. So Burgoyne is now on his own after this. But at Fort Stanwix, there's about 600 New Yorkers under the command of Colonel Peter Gainsworth, whose grave we actually saw when we did our ERW trip uh, back in November. That was in Albany. I believe it was Albany, right? Yeah, I think it was. Yes. Um, but those New Yorkers are going to be surrounded by close to 2,000 Redcoats, Canadians, Tories, as well as Indians. Um, and they are going to be surrounded. No cannon involved, though. So Barry St. Ledger is just going to try to starve these men out. However, uh, come the middle of August, uh, back closer to Albany, uh, Major Ge or, yeah, Brigadier General Benedict Arnold, or no, Major General at that point, he's been promoted in May, uh, he is going to request from his commander, Philip Schuyler, in command of the no Northern Army, to march 1,200 men out there towards the relief of Fort Stanwix. He's going to hit the road, uh, and by the time he's getting close to the fort, he's going to learn that St. Ledger's Army has actually retreated already. Why? Because a loyalist that was captured by one of his men uh, is sent into St. Ledger's camp to perform a ruse, tell him uh, that... Arnold is on his way with 3,000 men as well as 10 cannons, and Ledger's about to be surrounded. So uh, Barry is going to uh, kind of cut his losses and take his army and now move out back towards Canada. So Fort Stanwix is saved. Uh, Arnold leaves 700 men there and will take the rest of them back towards the Northern Army, and they'll end up fighting in the battles of Saratoga later on. Another little-known battle that Arnold was involved in. A lot of people don't know that. I think it's important and overlooked. 
and we were going to go visit there last November, but Phil would not let us. Remember, we Phil Phil would not allow the caravan to get the sandwich. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> okay, yeah, blame me. <laughs> I, wanted hey, to, I wanted to go down a Riscany, but nobody wanted to go. I think we had to go to some establishment that sold wings instead. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, Eric, I'm going to ask you a question about George Rogers Clark. And Bill was talking about the actions in Florida and about how that, you know, had repercussions after the war, um, you know, and, and the United States expanding its territory. What kind of repercussions do you think uh, that George Rogers Clark's expedition, his campaign had for the United States to be able to withhold the, the territory that he was fighting in? Well, the British and the Indians wanted to contain the Americans on the eastern side of the Appalachians, right? Um, I mean, we had already spread past it uh, along the uh, upper Ohio River and down into Kentucky. Uh, but by defeating the British, he essentially forced them to recognize the American claim out to the Mississippi in the Treaty of Paris. Now, they didn't evacuate all their posts like they were supposed to. Right. But without that successful campaign, you know, that Northwest Territory, uh, which also got to be the, sighting of, or the site of many years of warfare to come, was negotiable, was debatable in terms of who that who was going to end up with that, the British or the Americans, because we certainly had not conquered it and weren't going to conquer it as as guys like uh, Crawford, Hand, and 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 uh, McIntosh demonstrated without George Rogers Clark, uh, without his success in the Mississippi and Indiana, um, I don't think we would have. The thirteen colonies wouldn't have grown into thirteen states and fourteen states and fifteen states with Ohio, Kentucky. Uh, you wouldn't have seen any of that. It would look very different. Spanish might have gotten it. Who knows? Right. And they're looking to get rid of his statue, right? In uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. George Rogers Clark has a... Uh... Oh, he does? Yeah, I think he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, George Rogers Clark, uh, his big victory was Vincennes, right? Yeah. Um, in, in what's that at that site today? Do you know? Uh, there's a... I haven't been there. I plan on going. I was going to go this summer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Uh, big like national monument, I feel you. There's a national park in the sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, Josh, you know the chief train park. Uh, Aaron is his name, I think. We should get him on here and see if he uh, agrees yeah, with uh, Eric. Bring more Western theater people into this. Yeah, okay. Do it. Red War Western Theater, not Civil War. Just, just coming Great. up. <laughs> Two of the big towns important to Clark were a place called Kaskaskia, which was the center, uh, the biggest town in that area, and Cahokia. Kaskaskia is now under the Mississippi, and Cahokia is underneath uh, basically East St. Louis in the airport. So there's nothing to see. <laughs> Vincennes is where you go if you want to see something associated with Clark or Louisville down in Kentucky. Interesting. All right. Anyone have about an hour into this um anybody anyone have any other thoughts about actually um i do want you guys to address something really quick someone did ask i forget it might have been kate or someone else overlooked revolutionary war leaders anyone have a couple people have any thoughts on that obviously mark you can't talk because you just know george we all know george is known um but... <laughs> all right Bill, Billy? Uh, I'd say Anthony Wayne. I mean, to us, he's not overlooked, but I think to the general public, he definitely is. He was definitely one of, in a very defensive-minded army, he was a hard hitter. He was Washington's hard hitter. So I'd say he's definitely overlooked. Agree? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with that. Matt Anthony Wayne. Mm -hmm. Bill? Um, I'll get charges for being a homer here, but uh, I'm gonna go to uh, Maryland with uh, Otho, Otho Holland Williams. Uh, yeah. uh, I was, I mean, he's one of the first. Um, not Johnny Eager Howard. I mean, Johnny, yeah, but Johnny Eager Howard. Um, I feel like Williams. The reason I give it to Williams, and I was actually gonna give Mark a shout out here, but now that he's throwing me under. Williams actually, um, after showed such promise that Washington actually offered him, I think, the second or third in command of the United States Army after the um, 
the American Revolution. Um, but he actually uh, was captured in New York during one of those overlooked battles, which broke his house. But he was put in charge of uh, one of his other um, good retreats that Green did, the race through Dan, being in charge of some of the um, light troops and cavalry there. Uh, but he actually, I mean, served through uh, most of the war and was in Boston with our own way to Boston with the rifle company in 1775. So, I mean, he served through all the breadth of the war. Um, I mean, if you want to keep going out, Mariners, we'll do John Eager Howard. As long as we don't talk about William Smallwood, we're good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so Arthur Williams is another one. Um, I think uh, you look at, um, uh, who's it? I think William Davidson, uh, this first thing's escaping me, some of the North Carolina militia leaders um, as well. Um, Mordecai Gist is another good Marylander. Mordecai Gist. Um, I mean, we can go on. I mean, I'll, I'll keep talking about Maryland Red War heroes because uh, <laughs> uh, after that, I mean, uh, we can even go to War of 1812 since we got a comment there. I mean, Fort McHenry over, overlooked there. Um, so, no, uh, that's uh, also Otto Holland Williams uh, would be one of those ones that's over on the list. There is actually a good press out of South Carolina has written a few books on like some of those Red War leaders that kind of flew under the right radar. And Peter Howard, uh, Tim Peacock, I think, has been part of that. His other one, the Peacock, a uh, great historian out of South Carolina. Yep. Mark? Hugh Mercer. Uh, Somebody he, was called, uh, Gabe was calling for someone to mention Hugh Mercer earlier. So, okay, sorry, it's so long, but it's yeah, a while. he's a uh, he's a bona fide hero of the revolution. Uh, who, uh, you know, I mean, he gave it all, he sacrificed his life, uh, at the Battle of Princeton. Uh, uh, but you know, prior to that, he was instrumental in the galvanization of Virginia troops, uh, leading into the revolution. and uh, you know, had great potential, but uh, willingly gave his life at the Battle of Princeton. Um, and his sacrifice was so big that, uh, you know, Congress said that there should be a monument built to him. And it took, you know, over 100 years, but eventually there is a monument to him down in Fredericksburg, Virginia, uh, Hugh Mercer. But uh, just, you know, one, and we just listed, you know, 10 names or, I mean, there's just, there's an unending list of these guys. Uh, you know, and I just think it's interesting that uh, in the revolution, you're right, Washington is world-renowned. Everybody knows him. But as soon as you go to the next level, it's like, you know, it, I would say the number two guy in the whole revolution uh, on the American side is Nathaniel Green. And, you know, a lot of people don't even realize who he is, like, outside of, you know, a Revolutionary War world, you know. A lot of people I find, you know, I go visit, my brother lives down in Greensboro, North Carolina. People don't realize, you know, that's well, they know Natty Greens, I guess, because of the, uh, the the brewery, which is great. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, no. I think I think all these Rev War guys, all these officers, are are overlooked, unfortunately, way too often. Right, and that's a common theme in a lot of American Revolutionary War history, War of eighteen twelve history. Um, I'm going to throw out a name that you guys are going to know, and, and you guys are going to tell me I'm crazy. But I'm going to say Lighthorse Harry Lee, only because he's overshadowed by his son. <laughs> you know, people really don't. Not many people know who Lighthorse Harry Lee was. Um, he's from Prince William County. I actually live about two miles from where he was born. Um, you know, a local Virginia hero who uh, was uh, very important to Green and Washington um, with, this, with, you know, his combined infantry and cavalry corps and um, fought a lot of smaller battles. Uh, 96. Vanessa, you want to feel talk about 96? I'll mention. 96 briefly for, for Light Horse Harry Lee, who was in action there at 96. But um, I just mentioned Lee because he's so overshadowed by his, by his son. And um, he uh, has many uh, troubles after the war. He, he falls into some political strife. It's himself uh, beat up pretty badly in Baltimore. Um, and while uh, he's in, in prison there for his safety, a mob breaks in and pokes his eyes, cuts his nose, pours wax on him, and never really recovers throughout the rest of his life and, and dies uh, shortly thereafter. Um, but I'll throw his name out there just because of his I, son being... Well, I, I, think it, I think that's a great choice, too, because and it's really interesting to see Robert E. Lee later in life really interested in his father's military career and go in and, uh, you know, help publish his uh, memoirs uh, later in life. But I think that's, uh, you know, too often we hear about 
so-and-so, Light Horse Harry Lee, Hero of the Revolution. And that's usually like where they leave it. But it's really interesting to dig into, uh, you know, who were these guys? Where did they fight? What did they do? Uh, how did these actions play out? There's a lot of uh, a lot of stories there that, that are often overlooked in just the moniker of the Fox Revolution. Um, and so I think Light Horse Harry Lee, yeah, he's he's a he's a real hero of the war too. That's too often been overlooked. Right. Well, anything else, gentlemen, before we sign off here? Um, if not, I want to thank everybody for taking an hour out of their, their evening to to pop on. Those watching, thank you all for watching. Uh, I want to thank Eric and Billy for joining us this week. Uh, we look forward next week. Next week uh, 7 o'clock next Sunday. Not sure the topic. Phil and Mark and I really don't get the topics picked out until what? Saturday night at 10 o'clock? <laughs> they're about. <laughs> but we will be back next Sunday at 7. Um, Eric, looking forward to that book because I, I read part of your manuscript and it's great and Everyone watching should look at that book when it comes out here, hopefully in the near future. Um, but anyways, you all have a great week. Thanks for thanks for watching again. And everyone stay safe. Thank you all. Thank you.